We're continuing in our discussion of the shield of faith to view the shield as both the stone rolled in the place of a sepulchre to seal the tomb of those who are dead and as a door. And we'll move to to discuss how this both applications relate to quenching the fiery darts of the wicked. We've taken a look at what the fiery darts of the wicked one are, um, attacks of course upon uh, your emotional makeup, accusations of various sorts and, and the rest. So. In the remaining uh, messages under the title of the Shield of Faith, I'd like for us to continue uh, that particular trend. Um, today, or in, this, in this broadcast, we will be looking at uh, the Shield of Faith as applied to fathers, as applied to princes, Um, and how being under the rule of righteous fathers, uh, just like being under the rule of righteous princes in a nation, grants a level of protection that's related to the anointing of the father, related to the anointing of the prince. Uh, I know that um, in the American mindset of individuality and individualism, this obsession with equality uh, has set aside many biblical principles such as the corporate man and in this sort of egalitarian perspective when brought to scripture we neglect such great salvation afforded us by being under the rule of righteous fathers and or being under the rule of righteous princes. I remember on one occasion uh, I was meeting with a group of young men uh, from a particular part of Texas where this spirit of individualism knows almost no bounds and these young men accurately claimed to be believers in Jesus Christ. But as I started to talk about fathers, uh, I remember them insisting that they did not need fathers, that they were orphans and they were proud of it. In fact, their view of being an orphan was that mainly God had raised them. (laughs) I can tell you this, that God wouldn't take credit for the mindsets, the behaviors, the practices that were evident amongst them. It reminded me a little bit of Greek mythology and the story of the three sisters who had uh, only one eye between them. 
these young men did not in fact have one eye between them. They all swam in the same fetid pools of shared ignorance, but hearing themselves in an echo chamber comforted them in much the way that children speak loudly to one another if they're walking across a graveyard at night. The sound of their voices comforted them. But the idea that they were hearing the reverberation of their own sounds was soothing to them. Of course, they were not in any danger at the time, and so uh, this exercise, this enterprise of uh, self-congratulations, not unlike young men and women uh, of any um, particular configuration, uh, until they're tested, and these notions are genuinely and strenuously confronted by reality, everything seems right. Um, in fact, it turned out that way for the particular group of young men who constantly made serious and foolish mistakes that were readily avoidable had they inclined their ear to hearing from a father, from a loving father. Now, to their defense, I will say, none of them had what could be described as either a loving father or a wise father. Their fathers were all, uh, and I knew enough of their backgrounds, their fathers were all very broken men who had nothing to give to their sons. And so their, dis their view of fathers was shaped by their experiences with horrifically broken fathers. And so their notion of uh, not being under the rule of an abusive father uh, was generalized to encompass all fathers. I'm reminded of what God said about the end of the age. Uh, he said, in those days, I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and I'll turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers or, or I will destroy the land with a curse. One only has to look at nations where fathers were decimated by war, disease, um, drugs, alcohol, lustful behaviors, and the rest of it, to see the catastrophic effects when accumulated in an entire generation. Young men and young women, but it's especially evident in young men because they seem to lack some of the restraints that young women might uh, might have. But again, I'm noticing a comparable level of vulgarity and the lack of restraint among women, young women, as I often notice among young men who are fatherless. And it contrasts starkly to young men and women who've been properly fathered. There is an inherent protection to households, 
to families that rests upon them through the grace of a righteous father. In fact, it is part of the inheritance of generations to have and to benefit from the righteousness of their fathers. God will give out of the estate of the righteous generosities and kindnesses and goodness to their children well before the children's own righteousness would justify the favor of the Lord upon them, well before the works of their own hands would account for the the superlative access they have to the resources of an older generation. I mean that's, you know, I know that in the present day when for for so many young people the goal is to develop your own app so you could be independently wealthy or develop your own skill whether at entertainment or sports or what have you, so that you are independent of anything resembling legacy. (laughs) But what's so tragic is of course the numbers of children and young people who can achieve these things by comparison to those who do not and who struggle to just simply get on their feet, the numbers of those who are favored in that way really is negligible, doesn't make much difference to an entire generation, but it catches the fancy of the young because one of the things about being young is one's imagination substitutes for reality. Righteous fathers are shields to their households. One only has to look at one only has to look at the sudden breakdown of a family, where the father is taken out by death, divorce, imprisonment, these things to see how quickly the family collapses because what is is introduced is a high degree of confusion and uh, the whole turmoil, the whole family is placed in uh, the maelstrom of turmoil. I think some young people confuse the freedom or the lack of a father with being free, free to do what you want. Well, freedom, you see, is not the lack ever, the lack of restraint. Freedom is the appropriate restraint so that you're not controlled by lust, passions, circumstances concerning which you have no effective defense and you do need to be defended. Freedom is not, freedom ought never be described 
as the right to simply do what you want. Because somebody ought to tell people who have that mindset there are consequences associated with doing whatever you want. I know this one, one man, in fact, uh, I know him quite well, who as a young, man, a young boy, young man, grew up in a family where the, that was entirely what the psychologists would call dysfunctional. And one of the evidences of that upon his life was nobody cared where he was. He could walk the streets at 2 a.m. if he wanted to while he was still a very young uh, teenager and come home or not whenever he wanted to. You know what his longing was? He longed for somebody to care enough to inquire as to where he was. And he routinely contemplated doing extraordinary things, including criminal activities, just to see if anybody would respond. This is something of the curse of the fatherless. The fatherless have no fathers as shields and therefore they have neither the blessing that accrues and attenuates to them from the estates of their fathers nor do they have the wisdom to navigate their youthful pathways. And the unfortunate truth of this is that they grow up with that deficit. When it's their time to be fathers or when it's their time to be wives and mothers, They're entirely disoriented relationally because nobody ever taught them. I think if if we had the courage to dig down into uh, the entire uh, behavioral uh, manifestation of homosexuality and lesbianism, what we would find is the tragic absence. In the majority of cases, we'd find the tragic absence of a father as a shield, allowing for contradictions and questions about identities to arise at times when young people are very vulnerable. This is just a a bit of uh, the discussion of fathers as shields. We have talked about uh, the sepulchre as a shield which is the indication, uh, the stone in front of the sepulchre as a shield which is the indication of death and immunity from the attacks of the enemy through that. We've talked about Christ as the propitiation of the body that is assembled uh, to him and the immunity that his sovereign presence confers against the accusations of the enemy 
and also the benefits and privileges uh, that we have in coming to the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ as the door, the indication of uh, shield, thurios, the term for shield, as a door. A subset of that, or perhaps an independent uh, application of shield as door, is that of righteous fathers and or righteous princes. And I was speaking in the introductory portion of this third uh, application of door as shield of the natural family. But the same thing is absolutely true. In fact, it's the, the means by which God intends to redeem the fatherless who cannot be uh, uh, placed again behind the shield of a derelict father or even a dead father. Their lot in life is not to be discarded, but God places the solitary into families, the scriptures say. So a spiritual family is perhaps even more effective than a natural family. The ideal would be, of course, for the natural family headed by a righteous father to also be, uh, for the natural family to be subsumed in the greater picture of the spiritual family. So that the natural is both the natural and the spiritual in both the family member and the father. So the natural father is also the spiritual father and the natural family is part of the spiritual family. This was of course the picture of Israel as it was arranged according to families, households, clans, tribes and ultimately a nation, each headed by a righteous father. And the requirements were quite stringent. The fathers had the responsibility of reminding those in the household of their uniqueness as those who were subject to a promise that would deliver the Messiah into the world. So the fathers would write scripture over the, over the doorways and the father would bind scripture to their foreheads and to their, uh, to their right hand and would have the children recite the scriptures every day, a picture of spiritual fathers in the context of a natural family. Concerning spiritual fathers, John writes that the qualification for being a spiritual father is that one knows the Father. I write to you, fathers, John said, because you know Him who is from the beginning. You know God the Father. You're a model of God the Father assigned to a spiritual house. And God is the one who makes the assignment and people are naturally drawn to the grace within that Father 
as part of the, the subset of the assembling of the body of Christ. So even the, the most cursory look at the value of fathers as doors or shields uh, would put the lie to the idea of individualism and would show that it is puerile folly. It's the folly associated with children who simply lack the intelligence and the development to understand the value of restraints to which they've been assembled by way of fathers for the purpose of bringing them through the days of their youth and, and young, young adulthood so that they survive intact. Why do we think the prisons are filled with generation after generation mostly of fatherless people? Anecdotally, we've heard the story of how a certain uh, charitable organization provided Mother's Day cards for prisoners to send to their mothers. And virtually all the cards were used up by prisoners who wished to say to their mothers how valuable they were in the lives of the children, of, of them as children. It was such a success that they determined that they ought to try, they ought to do it again, this time on Father's Day. So a charitable group provided uh, greeting cards for Father's Day and almost none was taken. Now again, this is an anecdotal reference and not offered as proof of both the extent of fatherlessness and the broken nature of of mankind because of the loss of righteous fathers. It's merely anecdotal. All you have to do, however, to see the relevance of this is to look at entire countries in which fatherlessness threatens the very existence of the country, where because of fatherlessness there is no preparation for the future, there is no uh, direction uh, for the generations, and they flounder and they make many of the same mistakes that their own fathers had made um, in their time. Men and women, young men and women, waste the better part of their early years just trying to figure out what life is about, how to navigate. All of that would be entirely unnecessary if fathers were righteous and on their station to give guidance to their children. The enemy has the opportunity to ravage generations because fathers are generally absent 
from nations. To move on, there are many references to princes as shields over nations. And in general, the references have to do with a delegation of authority from God that is given to a prince who, when the prince rules over a nation, God honors the delegation of authority when and if the prince rules righteously. This is, this is actually, uh, although there are numerous references, one understands this intrinsically, it's sort of the background behind the great kings of the Old Testament and, uh, and even kings of, of nations that, that have, have and have had kings historically. You know, people talk about kings like good King Wenceslas um, or King Alfred of England who was in history defined as the perfect man and so on and so forth. Um, Deuteronomy, well actually beginning Genesis 15.1, uh, uh, Abraham is told that God is his shield and the blessings of Abraham then become the shield for Israel until the seed should come who is Christ. Deuteronomy 33.29, Israel is described as uh, a happy people because God is their shield and help and the sword of their majesty. Again, abiding within the provisions of kings, uh, the entire nation enjoys immunity and blessings. Psalm 33.20 that our soul waits for the Lord who is our help and our shield. Again, the, the trickle-down effect of this anointing upon a king versus the kings who refused to submit to the rule of Christ, in turn becoming, uh, the nation becoming uh, destitute. The second psalm is uh, a clear indication of how God grants to kings, and of course in this case it was the Lord Jesus Christ as the king, but he's a type of the Davidic uh, king. God grants such grace and favor. God even grants the lives of the enemies to kings who acknowledge God. And then in Psalm 84, 11, again, God described as sun and shield who gives grace and glory to those who walk uprightly. Uh, Romans 10.17 is an interesting component of this. Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the Word of God, the Word of God comes by one who has been sent. I mentioned Moses earlier on as and in the days of Israel when they were hidden behind the doors of their houses as the destroyer came by. I, I want to pick up on that point when we come back 
and finish out this piece about fathers, princes, leaders being shields and it's the faith of those who act consistently with the righteousness of God that grants a broader base of immunity to those under their rule. I'm Sam Solon as we continue uh, to discuss the shield of faith we'll see more clearly how it works to grant immunity to those protected by the shield of faith. We'll talk more about this later. Bye-bye.